tonight we're jumping in uh, with um, Egyptian horses and chariots. A couple of years ago, I did some teaching around this same sort of theme, um, and I included a story that I'm going to retell uh, tonight. I'd be amazed and impressed and touched and encouraged if some of you remember uh, that from two years ago. Normally, it's like a week later. It's like, do you remember that thing we were talking about on Sunday? No, no. So um, anyway, two years, there we go. If it's coming back to you, then God bless you and uh, have a recap. Um, picture the scene. I'm in year nine. I'm a 13-year-old boy. Um, I still have a high voice as my friends around me are sprouting into men. I'm being left behind at this point. And, um, and I've got a bit of a situation going on because in orchestra at lunchtime, and I was very cool, just like Nat, and I played percussion in a school orchestra. Did you play in your school orchestra? Or did you leave that behind for greater things? Anyway, I was there. Friday lunchtime is what I did. And there's a girl um, in year eight called Julie who played the flute. And Julie had got it into her head that she fancied Owen Gallagher, who played the cymbal or whatever I was playing at that time. And um, fine, except for in Julie's class, there were two kids. One of them was called nickname was Frank, as in Frank Bruno, and he was proper man of a child. Um, he was huge. Um, and his friend, who was encouragingly called Nutter. Nutter was much more normal sized, but apparently he was twice as hard as Frank. So um, they got it in, here's the problem. They fancied Julie, Julie fancied Owen. Their conclusion was that they have to beat up orchestra Owen. Simple, right? So one chilling morning, the, the, the news goes around the school that Frank and Nutter are out to batter Owen Gallagher. And my 13-year-old blood ran cold. I was the kid who always ran away from the fights. Um, I was fast enough to do that. Um, but you can't run away from a year eight, right, if you're in year nine in front of the whole school. And it's just that, that's the end, right? So my plan when it came to break time was to go and stand by um, some of my sort of biggest year nine friends, because break time was just coming up, it was just minutes away. Um, and what took place during that break time was a, one of the most sort of vivid memories of that time in high school. And I will tell you more about it in a minute. But we're going to jump into Isaiah, um, who you will well, well remember. Isaiah, here he is delivering a PowerPoint presentation, I think, um, to King Ahaz. In chapter seven, um, um, Isaiah is eighth century BC, um, speaking to the kings in Jerusalem. Um, chapters one to 39 of the book, Isaiah reflect that situation. And in chapter seven, he's going at King Ahaz, and Ahaz has got a bit of a situation himself, um, where there's different neighbors putting pressure on him to join an alliance uh, with them, and Isaiah comes in and essentially says, the Lord says, don't do it. Trust me on this one. This threat, this potential threat is going to come to nothing. Um, don't go for any clever political maneuvers. Just, just um, chill down, as my daughter says. <laughs> Three-year-old character, chill down. I don't know where she's mixed that up from. Um, Thus says the Lord, chill down, it has. Um, <laughs> So that's the situation there. Ahaz doesn't follow that advice. He um, uh, tries to make these alliances, and it all goes a bit wrong for him. Um, but, and sure enough, just as 
um, the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah said, um, this threat came to nothing. And it was all a bit of an unfortunate mess. Um, about 30 years later, and uh, Isaiah is brought back in to the royal court in Jerusalem, this time to King Hezekiah, um, to make another PowerPoint presentation, thus says the Lord. Um, and this is our text, our main text for tonight, um, the first five verses of Isaiah 31. And Isaiah says this, um, Alas, for those who go down to Egypt for help and who rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Yet he too is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will rise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are human. They're not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirits. When the Lord stretches out his hands, the helper will stumble and the one helped will fall and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over its prey and when a band of shepherds is called out against it, it's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight upon Mount Zion and upon its hill. Like birds hovering overhead, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn back to him whom you have deeply betrayed, O people of Israel. So again, Isaiah's message to the king of Jerusalem is essentially the same as it was with King Ahaz. He's saying, trust God. Trust God for your protection, not in your human schemes, not in your self-made defense plans, not in your own ability to control your situation, but in a very real, frightening, perhaps daring sort of way. Hold back off those alliances and just trust and depend on God, who is powerful like an unfazed lion, who's protective like hovering eagles, watching over what is a relatively small and weak city in the grand scheme of things. But, he's, but this is God we're talking about watching over this thing because through these people he's actually got some very big significant plans so where is Isaiah getting all these ideas from so if this is Genesis through to Revelation we're going to say that the New Testament starts with Matt um, so that's over there so on the grand scheme of the Old Testament <laughs> Isaiah <laughs> Isaiah you look like Jesus mate Isaiah is probably here so Robin will be our Isaiah um, where is Isaiah getting all these ideas about God having these, these big plans from? Well, we need to skip right back to Exodus, which is our second book, Exodus 15. And Exodus 15 um, contains some of the, what scholars think is the oldest text in um, the whole of the Old Testament. And so this, this bunch of Abraham's descendants who were in captivity in Egypt, they get set free. And then Exodus 15 is like a folk song, really, of, of remembering their deliverance, their dramatic deliverance, the beginning of themselves as this sort of free people. And around this folk song, then, the, the wider narrative would have been stitched as the Bible became, came into formation, as we looked at way back in September, if you can remember. But anyway, um, Exodus 15 contains these words. <coughs> I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea, Pharaoh's chariots and his army, 
he has cast into the sea. And so this epic moment of deliverance set this people up out of Egypt, out of slavery, delivered from the horses and the chariots, set themselves up to be something different. Horses and chariots in the Bible are kind of like um, the equivalent of um, aircraft carriers and guns. It's the sort of symbol of uh, oppression, political dominance, dominating other people, getting your way, might is right, it's political realism. Um, the church has got into bed with political realism, realism um, a fair few times over the, the, uh, the, you know, over the last 2,000 years and, and dominating and forcing our agenda. And that is not the way for the people of God. They're set free to be something different. So in all saints, we looked at this morning, we've got this like, I don't know if you've ever noticed it in the other building, this, this bit of um, Georgian ironwork. It's sort of set up on one of the pillars towards the sort of front right. Look out for it. Uh, it's what, 18th century, I think, um, and it's a sword holder. And so this was a, a thing we had there for when the mayor would come to worship at All Saints. I guess only on like high ceremony occasions, and they'd set this ceremonial sword in this ceremonial sword holder. And it's the symbol of authority and um, you know, the, the power, <laughs> the dominating power of the law of the land and, 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 and all of that stuff. What I've done when we were clearing out the back cupboard at All Saints is I found a Bible that had a cross on the front of it. And I don't know if you've noticed this, this would be a keen eye who has. One person did come up to me like, what's going on there? I set this Bible up in the, um, in the sword holder as a kind of little redemptive act because it's not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And in Ephesians 6, what does it say? Something about taking up the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. This is our style, this is how we roll, not with the dominating sword of oppression, um, but actually with a deeper trust in a, in a love that endures a more powerful sword of magic, says C.S. Lewis. I'm going off on one. That was that. The guys get set free to be something different. The people of God are supposed to be different from all of the dominating might is right, the biggest guns gets to decide sort of way of operating, which makes sense then of some of their laws. Moving on from Exodus to Deuteronomy, there you are. Um, our scale is a bit off, aren't they? Um, Deuteronomy uh, 17, is that right? Explains this. This is how the people of God are supposed to, to operate. This is, I think, a law for a future king. Um, instruction, and it says, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you must never return to that way again. Don't return to those dominating others by superior force sorts of ways. Actually, what we're called to as the people of God, what we've always been called to, is a deliberate weakness, an embrace of radical dependence, a beautiful alternative. And so um, then you skip on to Joshua, says you for tonight, um, the, and the conquest narrative. And, and there's a lot of problematic violence and, and sort of dominating um, stuff in there that we looked at a few weeks back. If you were interested, to, if those questions are, uh, are, are still live for you, you could look up that. But um, in Joshua 11, it's got this interesting this detail, as Joshua is obedient and did as the Lord commanded him, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. God has just delivered Joshua and co. Um, you know, a remarkable 
kind of against the odds victory as a load of aggressors were coming down on them. Um, he's delivered, and, but he's not, there's the temptation then to take all the horses and the chariots that got left behind that were the spoils of war, but then just become the next dominating um, you know, oppressive force, powerful team in the area at the time. Actually, no, you, you've got to do away with that. We're called into this place of deliberate weakness, of trust, dependence on God. This is the story. It's not about collecting a superior force for ourselves. It's about stepping out of control, you could say. And just to be really clear, self-control is, is, is fundamentally important. Actually, this, this posture of, of learning to step out of control um, doesn't come naturally. It's not something we're going to just drift into. Um, it, it takes a lot of ap application of self-control and containing some of those anxieties or worries or turning that to God and stepping away uh, deliberately from um, our self-made security plans, perhaps following God's spirit as he leads us into his sorts of ways. Um, so just to be clear on that, I'm not abolishing self-control. Um, that's absolutely something we need so much more of. Um, but the call fundamentally on that bigger trusting God with your security, um, with all the stuff that threatens us, um, that's, that's what I'm talking about. So hundreds of years later, after uh, the sort of um, mosaic law, after Joshua uh, enters the land, we get back to Isaiah. And Isaiah is with Hezekiah. And what happens? Well, if you go into the British Museum, as I did just a few weeks ago, and you'll see a lot of ancient Egypt stuff, but if you turn right and you enter the um, Assyrian record of the, you know, the stuff they've dug up from there, you find this rather fascinating piece of baked clay. This is known as Sennacherib's prism. And it's basically, uh, they dug it up, um, maybe in Iraq, not too sure. Um, Syria, Iraq, that sort of zone anyway. And they dug it up and they, all the sort of cuneiform scripts, they've uh, eventually worked out what it said. And it's bragging, it's all the records of Sennacherib's, who is the um, Assyrian um, warlord uh, leader there. All his victories and the spoils he took, da 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 da, da you know, full of bravado and we absolutely smashed these people and blah, 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 blah. Until you get to the line on Hezekiah of Judah, and all it can say um, for King Hezekiah is this. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in Jerusalem. There was this big siege. There was this mighty threat. But this small, relatively weak city was not defeated. The archaeological Assyrian record cannot brag about this victory over Jerusalem falling. Because it didn't. Because Hezekiah got down on his knees and took Isaiah's advice. Didn't go down to Egypt for help, didn't you know, enlist the, sort of the help of the horses and the chariots again. Um, he trusted, and actually somehow, I don't know quite how, but God worked things so that this city stood. Because the truth is that this is God's world. And uh, we don't understand all the mechanics of it all, uh, but as a loving Lord, his care for creation involved this plan with this people. And he was not about to let this thing be thwarted. And him working out his big plans 
Um, that, that, that's the truth of the matter. Much, the truth is not these illusions that we have of our control of the situation. The truth is um, God is the one who, on that ultimate level, is in control. And we can trust him. And this is big fundamental stuff. This is where it can connect um, with us. This, this invitation to all of us to step away from our attempts to build our own security, to control you know, maybe the, the stuff around us, maybe the people around us to manipulate things into position. Actually, no, the invitation is to stop collecting horses and to start following the lion. But what does that mean when it all goes wrong? When that, that young couple who felt called by God to be missionaries in that part of the world follow that call, arrange their stuff, write to all their friends, get the money together. It's all going to plan. And then within two weeks, the husband gets shot. What do you, what do, you do then? Or there's, there's any number of scenarios where things feel, people feel like they've trusted God and it's not worked out how they thought it was going to work out. That's when we've got to remember that the lion became a lamb. And the cross is our emblem, our logo. So the expectation of the coming Messiah was of you know, someone to come and bring that political liberation again, you know, just like the Exodus back in the day, but this time it's the Roman Empire who were the oppressors. But Jesus walks in not on a war horse, but on a humble donkey and submits himself to the cross. Here's the deliberate weakness. And here's the beautiful alternative to all of that victory by force, that domination, that the people of God are called to be this alternative to, that Jesus is this beautiful alternative to. It's a trust in something bigger. The resurrection then reveals the power and the love that run deeper than anything that threatens us even a horrific, senseless death. Even Frank and Nutter, back in high school with little me, and um, there we are. It's, it's just a few minutes till break time. And the bell goes, and I'm seriously panicked, and um, pulse is racing. I don't know what to do. So I, I, you know, as my plan to go and find some big year nines, other year nine friends to go and stand with, and hopefully that'll be enough to make sure nothing too bad happens, and um, the only one I could find um, wasn't all that big, so it was not going to plan, and I said, oh, what do I do? And then I thought, do you know what? I could pray. <laughs> and I just prayed, like, God help. And, and immediately, and this is why it was such a remarkable break time, because immediately when I prayed, this, this wave of peace just sort of crashed into my little existence right then and there. And it was, it was like, you know, in a film when the, the, the wave comes across and the camera suddenly goes underwater and the, the whole like sound just changes and the perspective and the pace just like <laughs> That's the best way I can describe what happened then. And suddenly I was in this like, my, my fears were gone. And it wasn't this wave of 
guarantee that you know everything is going to be all right and you're going to get to go out with Julie or anything like that. It was just this like, actually God is with me. Actually, God has got my back. I don't you know don't need that person to get my back or that. Who knows what the next 20 minutes is going to hold? Um, but but the whole it was just like peace beyond understanding. You know is how the Bible talks about it. That's what it was right then and there. And how remarkable that these big epic things of these big like you know epic themes of trusting God and and all that echo down into our little lives. And and it's not just the big like you know new wine leaders or uh, United Nations leaders or the stuff have to rap, grapple with this. What does it mean to trust God? Actually, each one of us is invited to, to flesh out what it means to be the beautiful alternative that is the people of God. As it happened, nothing happened that break time. I didn't bump into Frank and Nutter and the whole sort of threat that had gone around the school fizzled out into to nothing. But that wasn't the point. The point is that um, we can trust God. What would be your temptation to collect horses and chariots in your life? Would it be a financial thing? What would be the, like, the anxiety? It might even have been the thing that you were praying about in that silence together. What, what is it for you? What does it mean for you to step into fidelity with the story of the Bible? To step away from your self-made security plans? To step away from your attempts to impose your control on your life, on others' lives, and instead to trust God. To embrace your weakness. Illusions of control are just that. Illusions, delusions. The truth of the matter is we are dependent And God is love, and we can trust him.